This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. Cheryl Penny uh, comes from the most humble of all roots. And really, we want to talk about a Horatio Alger story of a person who um, essentially picked himself up by his bootstraps and, and built a um, career and turned that into a powerhouse business. He runs Dynasty Financial Partners, which has over $60 billion on its platform. Uh, his story is really, I want to say, pretty unique in, in Wall Street, very, very humble origins, uh, and, and very much a self-educated person who was fascinated with finance from when he was younger and used that fascination really as a motivation to uh, self-educate, uh, autodidact is the term for that, and really become one of the most impressive CEOs in, in the financial industry space. This is a little inside baseball. It talks about what happens when advisors and brokers at big firms like Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch or UBS decide they want to go independent and leave those big firms to set up their own shop. What Dynasty does is provides a pathway to do that, either so that the person can become independent or the person ends up on um, Dynasty's platform. Uh, this is a pretty fast-growing space. We've seen major changes in the financial services industry over the past 20 years. Most of that acceleration took place after the financial crisis, where I think the once mighty brands no longer carry the same cachet because of their involvement in, in what took place with subprime and CDOs and all that. Not so much fun stuff. Uh, anyway, if you're at all interested in financial services, registered investment advisories, anything along those lines, I think you'll find this to be a fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, here's my discussion with Dynasty Financial's Cheryl Penny. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Cheryl Penny, welcome to Bloomberg. Hey, Barry. Uh, so great to be here. I am a huge fan of the show, so I'm thrilled to, to be a part of it. Thanks so much for, for the invite. Well, my pleasure. This is, this is long overdue. We're going to talk about Dynasty in a little while. I want to start discussing your background, because in the world of finance, your story is kind of unique. W would you mind sharing a little bit about your background with us? Sure, I'm, I'm happy to. Uh, look, we're, we're all living our own unique version of the American dream, but I'll tell you a little bit about mine. So I'm from a little fishing village, the easternmost point in the United States in Maine, called Eastport, Maine, population 1,400. Uh, I was raised there by my step-grandfather. When I was 11 years old and my grandfather was in his early 70s, the house that we were living in was condemned, literally fell down around us. And for three years, when I was 11, 12, 13, we were homeless, lived with various neighbors, obviously, very cold in the winters in Maine, but a great motivator when you're cold and, and hungry at times, uh, and always had you know great love and support of my, my step-grandfather, but was fascinated by, by numbers, was always good in math, convinced my high school teachers to have the stock market game added at the school. And I used to tell people, you know, someday I'm going to go to college and uh, and head off to Wall Street. Uh, and people kind of chuckled because not only had no one in my uh, family ever gone to college, no one from that part of the state had ever, uh, you know, gone off to, to New York to build a career in, in finance. I used to ask a lot of the, the tourists who would come visit to bring me copies of financial publications and uh, was self-taught, just always fascinated uh, by finance and wealth management and was determined to somehow, some way, find my way uh, to building a career in, in finance. And my grandfather always told me, look, you can do anything, even though he only had a fifth grade education, he always told me you can do anything uh, you want in life if you work hard enough towards it. And and I believed him, and uh, it's been quite a journey. So you go to not the usual Wall Street feeder schools. You end up at Bates College, 
which is a small liberal arts school. How did you find your way into the financial services industry from that education? We are blessed in the state of Maine with three great liberal arts schools, Bates and Bowdoin and Colby. Many people would know those schools. Part of going to Bates was I could stay in Maine. And and thankfully, Barry, the day before I graduated from college, my step-grandfather, who had raised me and meant so much to me, as you can imagine, he died in my arms. And I had the opportunity to give him my diploma before he did pass. I bought a a suit for $13 at the Salvation Army, uh, and I rode a bus a couple days past my graduation to New York City. And I interviewed at Smith Barney, uh, which, as uh, many of your listeners will know, is now part of Morgan Stanley. And I had interned my junior year at Bates at the branch uh, location in Portland, Maine, at Smith Barney. So I got to know some people there and basically traded a summer's worth of work for an interview in New York. I rode the bus 16 hours, and my biggest challenge that morning, Barry, was making my way through a revolving door, which I'd never seen at that point (laughs) in my life, getting up an escalator, which I'd also not uh, seen, again, being from a very small town, you know, fishing village in Maine, uh, making my way through multiple elevator banks and arriving there at my interview, uh, which I was a half hour early for, uh, and I just said, look, you know, I'll, here's my, my main roots. And I had a job since I was 10 years old, had to, and just said, look, you know, I may not be the smartest person in the room, but I'll, I'll work everyone. I'm self-taught. Uh, and I'd studied a lot about, you know, Sandy Weil and, and Citigroup and Smith Barney. And they said, look, uh, come back next week for a second round interview. And I said, you understand what I had to go through to get here? I got to go all the way back to Maine and come back. Uh, and the first time that I ever flew on an airplane, Barry, was they bought me a flight to come back the following week for the second round interview, which went well, and, and I was hired, and, and off I went to New York, not knowing anyone, but to start my career in finance. So tell us a little bit about your experience at Smith Barding. What did you do? What roles did you hold? And, and how long did you uh, stay there? The punchline is, I before starting Dynasty Financial Partners, uh, I spent a little over 10 years at Smith Barney, and it was a great place to learn the business. I'm a huge believer in mentorship by committee. Uh, I had some great mentors uh, w- when I was there. I moved around the country, which was fantastic. I went to L.A., I went to San Francisco, I helped open some private wealth offices there, and I tell a lot of people that are you know, looking to build careers in, in finance to stay close to the field. I think some of the challenges that some of the larger firms have right now is management has not ever really spent any significant time in the field to really understand where the rubber hits the road in terms of you know, the advisor-client relationship. You know, I've had the good fortune, Barry, my whole career, the lens through which I see the world is I work for advisors. And I've been fortunate enough that advisors have entrusted me over the course of my career to be their partner in their life's work to help them get new clients, take care of their best clients, grow their business. Uh, and that mentality I've brought you know, to, to this new business here. I was pushed a lot at Smith Barney and given a lot of responsibility. Again, understanding you know, I was a homeless kid from, from Maine who you know, was on welfare and food stamps and trying to work odd jobs. And my granddad worked odd jobs to make ends meet. And now uh, at the age of 27, I think, five years into my career, I was actually put in charge of private wealth management, uh, which, you know, big responsibility of introducing the firm's top clients and prospects to, to, to Sandy Weil and the senior executives in the firm and showcasing, you know, all of the capability of the organization sitting there with these billionaires and advising them on what to do with their money when, you know, seven or eight years prior, I'm standing in line in the sticks of Maine, uh, Barry, you know, waiting for a block of government cheese. Uh, So pretty profound uh, in terms of, you know, uh, you know, where my life went in a short period of time. I was working very hard, you know, uh, 17, 18, 19 hour days sometimes because I'm reading all night trying to come up the learning curve uh, with, uh, all these various concepts. And what I realized early on is that we had remarkable experts in all the different disciplines of wealth management, whether it was estate planning, capital markets, investment banking, 
asset management, traditional alternatives, et cetera. But we didn't have a lot of people who understood how they all fit together in the support of an advisor and in the support uh, of a large, sophisticated client. And that was, you know, over 20 years ago, the early formation of these wealth management divisions and then private wealth management. And I said, I want to be the person who's more than conversationally competent in all of the disciplines and help tie it together. And that really helped me, you know, grow my career pretty quickly. So ran private wealth, ran the executive financial services division, uh, which focused on all the firm's top corporate executive clients. Uh, This is, you know, in the early 90s and early 2000s, where executive compensation was really taking off with stock options, and that was a big business for us. Uh, So had an opportunity to run that. And then what I realized is all the firm's top clients who sat across the table uh, from me and and, and all these VIP meetings that we did with them, uh, for the most part, they were entrepreneurs. And I began thinking about how do I go from this side of the table to that side of the table? Uh, How do I take, you know, all of this knowledge and skill set that I built up around building platforms for leading advisors uh, and do it in a way that allows me uh, to be not an employee but an entrepreneur and start my own business? Uh, And that was the realization of of Dynasty. And, And when I decided to launch it, it was April of 08. Uh, which in hindsight was both a very good and bad time uh, to launch. We were headed into, obviously, the financial crisis later that year, so it was very difficult to raise capital. Uh, But there was a lot of challenges that the large Wall Street brands uh, would face over the next uh, several years. Uh, So from a timing perspective, uh, it worked out really well for this new business model that we created and launched, which was to provide an integrated platform service model for high-end independent advisors, the timing was right to bring that concept to market. Hmm, Really interesting. So let's talk a little bit about what Dynasty does. Um, What are your core services? What's the short version of of the um, product solution that you offer? Okay, thanks, Barry. The, the, The short version of what Dynasty does, we're in four businesses. Uh, One is a consulting business that advises uh, advisors based upon where they are in their life cycle. If they want to launch a business, we help them do that, you know, breaking away from a wirehouse, et cetera. If they are thinking about succession planning, if they're thinking about selling their business, uh, we'll help them uh, with with those types of things as well. So that's our consulting business. Our second business is our core services running all of the middle and back office uh, for an advisory practice. So uh, technology, compliance, billing, reporting, all the things that most advisors don't like to do that frees up their time uh, to take care of their clients and get new ones. Uh, they're outsourcing that middle and back office to us uh, in what we call our core service package. Third business is our investment platform. Many people refer to that, as you mentioned earlier, the TAMP, Turnkey Asset Management Platform, Separate Managed Account Access, UMAs, advisor as portfolio manager, trading tools, access to alternative managers, feeder funds, structured products, uh, access, and investment banking network that advisors can refer business to for the business owner clients, et cetera. That is an a la carte business. Uh, The advisors can choose to use it or not on behalf of their clients. Uh, And as you referenced, we have about $27 billion uh, now, making us a top six uh, TAMP uh, in the, in the independent space. Uh, and then the last business is our capital business, Dynasty uh, Capital Services, which is uh, both a debt and an equity uh, offering uh, to advisors. And oftentimes that capital gets used by advisors looking to launch a business, to fund succession. A lot of the capital gets deployed uh, if somebody wants to do a recap, kind of practice what they preach, take a few chips off the table, or if they want to grow inorganically uh, and drive their business uh, by acquiring uh, other advisors. We have a whole M&A team in-house that will go out, source a deal, help get the deal done, do the transition, the onboarding, and finance uh, that uh, transaction as well. We'll probably do 20 M&A deals across the 50 firms or so uh, over the course of of, of this year. And the last thing I think that's unique uh, that, that people uh, sometimes uh, don't understand about our business. We're that little Intel sticker, uh, Barry. So the advisors own the vast majority of the equity in their business, if not all of it, and Dynasty works for them. 
we are an integrated service provider that provides all the infrastructure and capital consulting and support, but all of the enterprise value and growth of that, which the advisors can monetize in a tax-efficient way down the road, is owned by the advisor themselves. Huh, very interesting. So, so let's talk about when you launched. How did you find the first team that joined the platform? Tell us a little bit about what that process was like in the early days, uh, how, how, when you're when you're taking that leap of faith and launching a brand new business, who who comes along uh, at the very beginning? Yeah, so obviously when you're starting a business, you know, signing up those first few clients is uh, a bit more difficult than it is today with you know sixty billion and a longstanding uh, track record that that we have. Our first RIA uh, outside client. Uh, is a firm called Pactolis. Uh, they're in the, the D.C. market, uh, run by a gentleman named uh, Alan Harder. Uh, I had known Alan uh, because he was at Smith Barney, so we had had a previous relationship, uh, you know, working together there. Uh, and he launched uh, his firm a little over ten years ago. He's had remarkable success uh, growing the business uh, organically and, and adding new clients and and, and, and new services. Uh, but it was a tremendous leap of faith, uh, and it's not lost on us. We we love all our clients, obviously, but in particular those early, those early clients when we were you know an idea like this new concept, and we said you know trust us, we understand it's your life's work, uh, and we're going to execute on your behalf. But we're going to jump out this window together, and that hand shoot's going to go up, and it's going to work, and you're going to have that safe and soft landing. Uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was obviously very stressful times uh, with the first five, six, seven uh, transitions. Uh, but, you know, knock on wood, those all went well and they continue to go well since. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, our original, you know, first uh, handful of clients will always have a special place uh, in my heart because all we were was a business plan, uh, a new concept, and they trusted us that we'd make it work for them. And, and thankfully we did. So it's now 12 years later. How has the process changed? What have you learned over those dozen-plus years? How different does that onboarding new advisor relationship look today versus when you were first starting out? Yeah, look, I'm biased when I say this, Barry, uh, obviously, but if you were to talk to a lot of third-party players, custodians, et cetera, in our space, I think they would say that Dynasty uh, you know, has the best transition process really of of anyone in the space. We've done it more than anyone. You know, we've onboarded and bro- broken away. If you talk about breakaway advisors, over the past you know just under a dozen years, over a hundred and fifty you know significant teams. Some of which we lo- helped them launch their own firm. Some of which we helped tuck in or join or sub aggregate other firms uh, that we that we had on our platform. Uh, we do an extensive debrief on every single one, you know, thinking about how we can get better. Uh, and I would say, like a lot of businesses that are, you know, north of 10 years in, uh, you know, there's a huge focus on the professionalization of the business. Uh, in the early days, uh, you're in startup mode. Everyone's kind of doing everything to get clients in and to actually get to a point where you have a business. Uh, and then once you, you know, have a business, then it's how do you make that business better? How do you professionalize it? How do you scale it? Uh, and we've really focused on, you know, the last five years in particular, the technology enabling of all aspects of our business. So, uh, if you know, to your question, you know, what's different today? An advisor who's joining up with us to do a transition today, there's a lot more, uh, you know, digital support, technology support, uh, a lot of practice management around a transition. We have our own proprietary app where we have the 150 steps that you'll go through in the transition all laid out in detail uh, in a password protected app that an advisor would have on his or her phone. And when everything goes from, you know, red to green uh, across, I mean, and we we're the Staples Easy Button. We find your real estate, negotiate the lease, design your name, your logo, your branding, your marketing, your PR strategy, your launch strategy, helping you uh, on the legal strategy around the move, setting up your client documentation, helping you select your custodian, doing all the paperwork in in transition, uh, training your staff on the new tech. Like, 
you name it, we do it. Uh, and we've done a lot of it. Uh, so, uh, like a lot of things in, in life, uh, there's no substitute, you know, for experience. We have at this point, a lot of experience, uh, and we've tech enabled, we've invested given the success of our business and people, uh, in the professional development of those people who support the advisors, uh, and perhaps our biggest competitive advantage, uh, is something that I mentioned earlier, uh, is that everyone who works at Dynasty, they're all an equity owner. Uh, they either bought equity in the firm or we have a, uh, an, an options and equity program. Every single person's an owner, so they act like an owner. And they wake up every morning and understand that we have one fundamental job, which is to work for and support our advisors. Uh, and if a transition doesn't go well, that will set that advisory firm way back, sets us back. Uh, we'll get fired. Right, the philosophical alignment is the you know we work for the advisor and the advisor works for the end client. We're comfortable standing and deliver delivering on behalf of our client, the advisor, just like they have to do for for their client. And I think a lot of ways, and this really started you know 25, 30, 40 years ago with some of the old partnerships, you know, Barry on Wall Street starting to go public. That alignment uh, got misaligned, right with. Uh, shareholders uh, and management and advisors and clients. Uh, but we've brought a lot of that purity of the alignment back, uh, which I think uh, culturally is a huge competitive advantage for us. Hmm. So so last year, InvestNet took a minority share with you guys. Uh, I assume that capital is going to give you some serious firepower uh, to do some things with. What are the plans to, to use that, that capital um, to f- fund your future growth? Uh, yeah, thanks for that question. I am a very loyal person, and maybe it's in part my, my background, but you know, a lot of the firms that backed us when I was in my garage with a business plan, uh, that says a lot and means a lot to me, and one of those firms was Investment. Uh, and you know, Judd Bergman, who you know, we, we all lost too soon, uh, was uh, uh, a very close personal friend of, of mine, as, as well as Ed Swenson, you know, some of the other co-founders here, uh, and Bill Kreger, uh, longstanding, you know, very close uh, personal friend. And, you know, we had talked over the years about finding more ways that we could work together. You know, we utilized, you know, some of their technology uh, on, uh, on our TAMP. And what we decided to do uh, was to launch uh, something that we're calling the Advisor Services Exchange, uh, which is a joint venture. Uh, it's run by Ed Swenson, who's the president of that entity. He's also the chief operating officer of, of Dynasty, uh, where we're bringing uh, value-add business services to RAAs that are current clients of InvestNet. So uh, helping them run more efficient businesses, more tech-enabled businesses, helping them outsource things that are not core strategic to their firm, helping them manage their expenses to build more profitable uh, P&Ls, which ultimately result in more valuable businesses, et cetera. Uh, and we're off, you know, we launched that about six months ago. We're off to a great start. There's been, we built a whole technology interface around data uh, so the advisors can use uh, the data around their business uh, to make uh, better decisions. Uh, on how they want to run their business, to do business planning. They can leverage our capital programs, compliance, marketing. Uh, they can outsource aspects of their investments uh, to us. Again, all designed to create scale and efficiency in the business. The other huh, thing very that... Yeah, and, it, and, and it, it, it's great, uh, and it's a fast-growing uh, element of, of our business uh, because a lot of advisors are looking to outsource, outsource the non-core uh, things. I mean, the, the biggest difference, Barry, if we were to look at a billion, our average RAA is about a billion two. If you were to look at a billion two advisor, let's say that we launched as a breakaway versus the average billion two RIA that's already independent coming to us to outsource, on average, which I find fascinating, the advisors that we broke away and stood up, on average, are over 500 basis points more profitable. And they tend to grow faster. The biggest reason for that, when you really peel back the numbers and do the analysis, is because on average, the billion two firm that we set up has three less people. The legacy RAA, uh, because the custodians are really good in the back office but don't really do you know the work in the middle office, have had to hire up. 
when you can get synthetic scale and outsource to a firm like Dynasty, you don't have to hire as many people. And yes, you know, with the vendors and the resource partners, with $60 billion, we get them a little bit cheaper. But the real delta comes from personnel savings uh, and then not having to manage those people, which frees up more time. And if you assume a multiple of seven or eight times and sometimes higher uh, in terms of valuation times 500 basis points, you can extrapolate that out to say the firms on our platform are almost a third more valuable because of the enhanced earnings uh, that we're able to help uh, to help to help drive. Uh, so very, very, that was very a big intriguing. part. Yeah, and that was a big part, Barry, why they did the investment. The other piece, real quick, is because a lot of the and this gets into our uh, enterprise group, uh, which is servicing institutional clients. A lot of the larger independent broker dealers that Investnet is servicing. Uh, one of the biggest challenges they're facing is their largest advisors are starting to graduate off of their platform and go fully independent. And a little bit of back to the future here, what you know, I did 15 years ago, helping to build the private wealth division at Smith Barney. For that same reason, the top advisors were looking to leave. We had to build a client segmentation strategy, a dedicated firm within a firm for the elite advisors covering the firm's top clients. That's what a private wealth division is. You're going to start to see these uh, high-end private client or private wealth divisions popping up at the independent broker-dealer. And some of those, I believe, will decide to outsource that to InvestNet and Dynasty because we already have that integrated platform. We, we, you know, we understand and have the DNA around how to develop a private wealth division. So I think you'll see some of that work coming into the market, which is great for us because it's groups of advisors and billions of assets at a time coming on our platform. It'll be good for those firms to create a division that an advisor can graduate into as opposed to off of their firm. And it will be great for InvestNet because, you know, it's the 80-20 rule. The top 20% of the advisors at the IBDs have the bulk of the assets and create the revenue, which then obviously flows back to InvestNet as a technology and asset management partner to those independent broker-dealers as well. So it was really those two reasons why they made the investment. We added Bill Kreger to the board. Uh, remarkable perspective that he brings from the industry uh, and it's just been a great partnership. Terrific. So a number of firms have relocated out of the tri-state region uh, towards greener pastures. You moved from New York City to uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. Tell us about the motivation for the move. What? Why exit New York? So we officially moved to St. Petersburg two years ago, but we started the, the journey on uh, you know, deciding if we were going to move and looking at various cities uh, about three years ago. So we spent a full year. Uh, I personally made uh, very 35 trips uh, to various cities, uh, primarily up and down the East Coast, uh, because it was, and, and Marianne, my wife, went with me and other senior executives, uh, because when you're asking, and we have a very diverse leadership team by financial uh, service uh, standards, when you're asking people to make a move out of Manhattan uh, and to dislocate, you know, their, their family, you want to make sure that you have extreme conviction that it's the right thing for the business uh, and the right thing for the, for the team. So you can imagine we took that, took that very, very serious. Uh, and ultimately for us, you know, we're middle, middle office, back office company. The closer you are to the end client, uh, the less margin pressure you have. I mean, advisors are feeling it a little bit, but we feel it more in the middle office. Obviously, custodians in the back office feel it even more. Uh, but for us, you know, I find that the businesses that do the hard things when things are really good, uh, to put them in a position to win disproportionately when things are more challenging, are the ones that, that win, you know, more disproportionately over the long term. So for us, things were great. This was several years ago. Uh, we obviously ended up, you know, uh, being a bit lucky uh, in terms of being here when the pandemic uh, hit. Uh, but the result is, you know, for us being here, Barry, 70% uh, cheaper real estate, personnel costs are 20% cheaper, uh, which allows us, you know, to take those savings, build a more profitable business, also make more investments in technology and in people uh, to service our clients. Uh, the infrastructure that's here is fantastic uh, in terms of the ability to get anywhere with the St. Pete Airport, the Tampa Airport, the quality of life, 
we found a lot of our employees, you know, were tired of commuting an hour and a half uh, and having the ability to walk to work. I mean, St. Pete, most walkable city in America, uh, it has great culture here, entertainment, arts, the pro uh, sports team. They seem to win everything in the last uh, couple of years. I'll take a little credit because uh, that wasn't the case when we first moved here, but it's happened. It has <laughs> happened since. Uh, but you know, St. Pete. I was going to say it's funny you picked. Yeah, I was going to say it's funny you picked St. Petersburg. Um, I've been spending a week or two uh, each winter down there, and but for the pandemic, we would have been down there for a month or so this year. Um, and and you know everybody kind of got stuck in place. We weren't going to uh, try try and do it in the middle of the pandemic. But I find that whole area on the Gulf Coast to be absolutely charming it's it's a very different headspace than the east coast of florida places like uh, miami or uh any of the other big cities along fort lauderdale anything else that's along uh the atlantic coast we looked at some of those locations and you're right it is it is charming Uh, we found that the delta in terms of some of the cost savings could be a little bit higher here uh, but really what cinched it for us is every time I came here, Barry, it felt like I was getting a community bear hug. Uh, every Everyone from, you know, the mayor, Rick Kreisman, and the economic development team that was here to multiple CEOs to the owners of the sports teams that are here, uh, everyone really wanted to partner with us. And, you know, Raymond James uh, is here, and, and I'm friendly with Paul Riley, who runs Raymond James. Uh, they were very supportive, uh, you know, even though we're in finance, we're not obviously directly in their space, which is primarily an employee wealth management uh, business. Uh, but the last couple of years, what's interesting, Raymond James has been one of the top asset gatherers in the employee channel, and we've been the top asset gatherer on the independent side. Uh, and both of those firms are located and headquartered in St. Petersburg. Uh, so that, to me, really highlights the, you know, where we are now as an industry with technology, uh, availability of talent, product access. You, know, you can really build a large-scale, successful business in finance anywhere in the country. And I would say the last plug for St. Pete, uh, to your earlier point, I think over the next 10 years, one of the hottest cities, uh, fastest growing, where you're going to see remarkable uh, you know, economic development in technology, finance, uh, and other key industries is right here in, in St. Pete. Uh, so I would encourage any business owner that is looking at this part of the country to look at St. Pete because there's some pretty remarkable things happening here. So, so you're kind of pointing at at something that I think is the one of the takeaway lessons from the pandemic. But let me ask it to you this way: what what lessons have the pandemic taught you about running a firm remotely and does this give wirehouse advisors an even greater incentive to depart well uh great question so i I would say you know to to the first piece uh you know we support advisors and i think what our advisors learn is that being uh proximate and over communicating uh and proactive I mean, this was the, the, over the past year, Barry, it's been the advisor Super Bowl. Uh, and, and those that, that have done those things uh, are growing fast. I mean, it's, you know, one of, the, one of the rare times when literally everyone wants to talk to a financial advisor. Uh, and those that, that took advantage of that opportunity, I mean, we have just seen remarkable uh, organic growth of the firms that we support. In terms of our business and the home office that's supporting the, the advisors. I mean, similarly, you know, the importance of over-communication, uh, being proximate with our clients ha- has been critical. Some of the challenges uh, that, that we've seen uh, is around hiring new people, training, the onboarding is challenging in, in this environment. I mean, we have some employees that have gone six months that are new team members that haven't had the chance uh, to meet, you know, the, the broader team members. Uh, culture, uh, which is so important within a business, is very difficult to, to, to drive, I find, remotely. Uh, efficiency sometimes, I mean, there's no substitute to walking around the corner and tapping a colleague, you know, on the shoulder and saying, hey, how do I do this or what do you think here? 
you know, now it's an email or, you know, a, a Zoom call and maybe the person's not immediately available. Uh, so some of those things are a little bit more challenging, but I think they'll get worked out as businesses get back into, you know, maybe a hybrid or what I call sometimes the cyborging of the business, which is leveraging technology with the with the human uh, element. I think we'll end in a place where it's one plus one equaling three. Uh, to the question about uh, advisors breaking away, Without question, uh, our business is spring-loaded right now. Uh, we're going to have uh, just a fantastic uh, 2021, uh, in large part because the breakaway advisor movement is accelerating. A lot of advisors historically in wirehouses have thought that a big part of what they give up for the 50% of the revenue that they give to the wirehouse, a uh, big part of that value is real estate, which they're now not getting. And they've now realized that they don't need that real estate as part of the servicing infrastructure to their client. Uh, they also have more free time because they're not in the office. They can explore uh, independence or explore a move and get educated. So the combination of those things, having more time to stick their head up and look around and explore and realizing that they don't need to give up 50% of their revenue. Uh, advisors that we support give up 15%, one five, not five zero. And, you know, they've got some, you know, if they want to have a small office, they can. But the average advisor on our platform is doing, you know, mid-60s to high-60s in terms of gross income, which is almost 50% more from an income standpoint on what they were receiving at a wirehouse. Uh, and, you know, the path to independence has become uh, more well-worn uh, at this point. Uh, they, they want to look peer-to-peer and have those conversations. Success breeds more success. Uh, so what we're finding, you know, Barry, in light of this environment, uh, it's only accelerating the movement towards independence. Huh, quite, quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the growth of the industry. You're now over $60 billion on your platform uh, between TAMP and Enterprise and, and Advisor Assets. How do you grow that to $100 billion in AUM? It's organic growth, helping our advisors get new clients. Uh, and, you know, we, maybe you've seen, uh, you know, in the past, you know, multiple months over the past year, uh, we've started to sponsor, in particular, a lot of local, trying to support some of the local athletes uh, in golf and IndyCar racing and tennis uh, to help get, you know, the brand awareness uh, out there more. Uh, we have a lot more of, of, of that activity to come. That has led to referrals uh, that we can make out to our advisors. And, I think about us really becoming, over the next five years, uh, in part, the good housekeeper seal of approval for independent advice. So if you're looking for uh, an independent advisor, look for one that's powered by Dynasty, right? Because here's all the buying power and support and technology uh, that they have. Uh, and I think Dynasty can, can become a much bigger part uh, helping uh, our advisors grow organically. Second part of our growth will come inorganically, meaning helping our advisors grow via M&A, whether it's uh, retiring uh, RAA principals that are looking to monetize their business, whether it's breakaway advisors who want all the benefits of independence but maybe don't want to run their own business and they want to join an independent firm, uh, that will continue to become an even larger part uh, of our business and our growth because of our 50 firms, I would say more than half of them now are M&A ready. And we've invested heavily in investment banking team in-house. Uh, we've reserved a lot of our capital and balance sheet uh, to help finance those transactions. So I think a lot of that, uh, as I said, will accelerate. And then obviously the third is new store sales. Uh, in thinking about adding a dozen or so new brands uh, that are powered by Dynasty, whether they were already independent firms that are looking to outsource to us, uh, or they're coming from, you know, captivity or an employee model and looking, you know, to, to own and operate their own firm. Uh, our flows are, are very strong in that regard. So those will be the primary drivers. And then the new business, as we've mentioned, that's coming on is the enterprise business. And I think selectively, you know, you'll see a few firms. An example of that would, would be uh, Mariner, which is a $35 billion uh, RIA run by Marty Bicknell, who I think is a great CEO in uh, the REA space, 
decided he wanted to have a platform affiliate model where advisors that didn't want to sell the Mariner could get all the benefits of the investment acumen and practice management uh, and coaching support of Mariner. Uh, and then Dynasty's turnkey platform supports that. Uh, you know, we're getting hundreds of referrals on our website a month. Uh, a lot of these advisors are, you know, 50, 75, 100 million. Uh, many of them don't want to sell. So we have now a channel partnership with Mariner where the advisor can go get the benefit of our platform, get the benefit of the support of Mariner, and not have to sell their business today. So you'll see us selectively enter into those types of partnerships, maybe support some of the larger independent broker-dealers standing up a private wealth division. So selectively onboarding some of these institutional clients. And you add all that together. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll stick my neck out here a little bit, you know, Barry here on the show, to say I'd like to see us inside of 24 months uh, cross over the, the $100 billion mark. Wow, that, that's a big number. So, so let me flip the question on you. Um, what are wirehouses doing to try and retain their top talent? They have to be aware of, uh, it's not just you, it's places like Hightower and LPL that are attracting um, a, a whole lot of talent from them. What can they do to staunch the bleeding? Well, look, our biggest competitor, uh, frankly, is inertia and complacency. And <laughs> as you know, in lots of uh, walks of life, uh, good is the enemy of great. Uh, and a lot of the advisors, you know, they've worked hard to build their book of business, uh, and they don't want, you know, to, to go through the knothole of a transition, you know, which is 90 days of, 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 of work, uh, to then get on, you know, the other side and, and, and have their business. So, you know, for us, typically a loss would be that we spent six months educating somebody and they just made the decision not to move. Uh, it's rare that we would dig in with somebody and they would move and, and not do it with us in the RAA space uh, because, you know, most of the advisors want a supported independent model. They don't want to have to hire all the people and they don't want to juggle 65 different vendor balls, uh, you know, so they decide to partner with us. What the wirehouses are trying to do uh, is, you know, to put these retire in place programs uh, in place, which takes advantage of inertia. Uh, reality is if an advisor goes independent, uh, they would make a lot more money, both in terms of income. They could decide when they want to retire. If they sell their business, it's long-term capital gains tax and a higher valuation. But many advisors just, you know, take the, the easier path, which is to say, I'll stay here. It's a three-month earnout. It's all W-2 income, uh, but it's easier. Uh, so wirehouses, again, understand, uh, you know, the, the inertia and complacency is on their side, so they're putting those programs in place. I think what they're also doing uh, smartly, and advisors are allowing it to happen, is to push forward their brand uh, more directly to the client. Uh, you see this at you know Merrill with Merrill Edge. You see you know a lot of the smaller account solutions uh, being rolled out at these firms, which is the institutionalizing of the client relationship. So the client has more of a relationship with the brand as opposed to the advisor. Uh, and I think you mean like wrap accounts, checking accounts, loans, all, all those yes. fun things. So you, you cross-sell them with multiple products, and then uh, you put them into models that the firm is running, not the advisor. Uh, and then it becomes a deterrent for the advisors to leave because a lot of their clients, uh, you see it at firms like Goldman and others where you have typically a lower uh, percentage of client assets that follow when the advisor leaves, because the client tends to have more of a relationship with the brand uh, as opposed right. to some of the firms where it's just the relationship with the advisor. I think the wirehouses are, are, are strategically trying to do more of that, whether it's tying them in with loan products, structured products, things that are proprietary to the firm. It's about driving the brand and creating stickiness. And I think ultimately, you know, over the next five years or so, you'll see the wirehouses looking and feeling more like a private bank where the advisor is more of a clear employee uh, and, you know, they're helping to cross-sell the relationship across the organization. Uh, and it would become more difficult in that environment for an advisor to, 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 to make a move. So I think, 
I think that's really the strategy that you're seeing be be deployed. Uh, longer term, perhaps uh, you could see some of these firms open up product access, maybe even eventually custody uh, to independent advisors. But that business is such a scale business, and you have firms like Schwab that have you know north of three trillion already. Clearly, a big lead. Fidelity, you know, you know, well north of a trillion. Pershing's a scaled player in that space. It's very difficult to have an employee model supporting advisors and an independent model supporting advisors when you're subscale in the latter. Uh, so I think uh, it will be a slow migration and probably more about product distribution to RIAs than it will be turnkey custody for most of those platforms. Huh. Very interesting. There's a quote of yours I really enjoy, and I want to have you uh, put some color on it. Quote, the amount of innovation in the last five years is greater than the 50 that preceded that, unquote. Give us a little more explanation. Are you talking generally uh, technology, financial innovation? I don't disagree with any of that. I'm curious as to, to your thoughts on it. Yeah, look, the, the reality is the whole independent space, the independent movement at this point, it's been discovered. And you see it if you're an REA and you decide to sell, there's 20 potential buyers that show up on the other side. Uh, I mean, it's just a wonderful business. It's annuitized. It's essential to our country. It's not going away. Uh, so, so all roads are starting to lead towards the REA space. And what that means is, the capital investment that's coming in, the attention that's being paid, is you're seeing tremendous innovation uh, across the board. So, yes, in technology, uh, in reporting technology, in OCFO technology, in OCIO uh, technology, in scaled compliance technology, basically all aspects of an advisory practice. And when you're in the independent space, Barry, and you don't have to worry about uh, you know, having 50 years of legacy technology that you can only incrementally move the needle with. But when we launch an REA, we're building from scratch custom technology to specifically fit the need of the way they want to service their clients. That's a huge advantage for them. On the product side, you know, whether it's, you know, partners now like iCapital and the access to alternatives that really started in the independent space or Halo on the structured product front or, you know, what InvestNet uh, has done to bring scale, you know, into the, into the TAMP and reporting and financial planning space. So many of those firms started on the independent side. And now you have wirehouses and banks trying to leverage that technology that started here, right? So the space is kind of turned upside down. And then you pour on top of it, you know, kind of the gas on the fire, which is uh, tremendous, uh, capital investment, uh, and the entrepreneurship. I mean, one of our biggest advantages is we are entrepreneurs servicing other entrepreneurs, right? So we're getting up every day and thinking about innovation and how do we make the advisor's life better. And the whole ecosystem that's evolved over the last 10 years, right? It, 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 it's driven by entrepreneurs who have great access to technology and capital that are fundamentally changing the way that wealth management is being delivered in this country. And I think, frankly, you know, it's just going to continue to accelerate. Huh. Really interesting. You mentioned scale. Uh, I It reminds me of the issue of market share. It's been pointed out a handful of the largest RIAs are $100 billion plus when the industry is measured in tens of trillions of dollars, meaning even the biggest firms barely have any sort of market share. Does that mean anything? Is there any significance to how widely diversified and distributed the industry itself is? Well, look, I do think that there will be brands that evolve on the national level, regional level, uh, within the RAA space uh, that will have real brand value. Uh, and Dynasty you know, hopes to be, again, that Intel sticker powering uh, a number of those national, you know, scale winners and helping to provide a lot of the, the scale and access that, uh, uh, that that supports them. But the reality is when you look at, you know, the economics of a wealth management business, 
a lot of people talk about you know the margin and margin pressure uh, that's happened in the industry. But when you look at the last 10 years, uh, that has occurred, but for, but in a different way than what most people describe it. And what I mean by that is we looked at the average end client on our platform is, let's say, about $5 million. The average client is being advised by one of the advisors. Ten years ago, the ROA on average on our platform for that $5 million client uh, was around 78 basis points. Today, uh, it's 74, 75. So you've had you know three or four basis points of erosion in terms of margin pressure. But the big change is the cost of service. Ten years ago, the client expectation might have been very simplistic financial plan, uh, and it's really an asset management relationship. Today, it's more holistic wealth management. It's, it's right. integrated financial planning. Uh, it's looking at the liability side of the balance sheet alongside of the asset side. Uh, you know, it's looking at overall risk management. It's incorporation of alternative investments, you know, alongside of traditional, et cetera, et cetera. So the team investment, the technology uh, investment, you know, what it costs to service that client has gone up. So the margin pressure actually is coming faster on the cost side than it is on the revenue side. And that's where scale matters. That's where these large multi-billion dollar independent firms have higher profitability because they're able to spread the cost infrastructure over more clients. That's why outsourcing to firms like Dynasty is accelerating, because you can get synthetic scale. And then the last part of, of the competitive advantage is marketing and dollars that you're able to spend on sales, whether it's adding a new client or adding a new advisor. The larger and more scale you have, the more free cash flow you have to make those investments. Right. And that's why the biggest firms are the ones that you tend to see growing the fastest right now. So so let's talk about some of the biggest firms. People have compared Dynasty to firms like Hightower or LPL. Who are do you think of as, as your competitors? Um, and, and what are the similarities and differences between them? Sure. Uh, look, you know this. Uh, it's lonely at the top. Uh, you know, sometimes. Uh, and the result is, you know, the space tends to be pretty small. So I know the CEOs of most all of these firms in the space, and we get together from time to time, and we, we, we share a laugh, uh, whether it's about a certain reporter or, you know, where the industry is going. Uh, the reality is, you know, the, the people at the tops of the organization, you know, from a peer-to-peer -peer practice management perspective, spend some time together. And in particular, Barry, I have a lot of respect for the other entrepreneurs uh, that have gone out there uh, and you know bet on themselves and and uh, you know are trying to execute a, a new model. Uh, in terms of competition, uh, there's a lot. I'm only 44 years old. I was 32 uh, when I decided to, to start the business. I'm going to be doing this for a while, and it's a lot of fun for me to be a mentor to. Frankly, a lot of these players coming in space, you know, these are firms being started by people that are still older than me, even though I'm seen as one of the, the original, you know, uh, visionaries in, in the space. Uh, I'm still only 44, uh, so it's nice for me to be able to mentor so many people uh, coming in. I don't see anyone today as a scaled, integrated platform uh, competitor to the high-end REA. We invented that. We created that space, $60 billion, as I said, $100 billion here in the, in, in the near term. Uh, we're not complacent. Uh, only the paranoid survive. Uh, so we're constantly watching what others are doing. But in the space where we sit today, I think we sit alone. Now, you mentioned firms, uh, you know, some of these roll-ups. Some of them have come in and out of the platform business. But as I mentioned earlier, um, I tell entrepreneurs, you've got to be laser-focused. It's very difficult to do one thing incredibly well. It's impossible to do several things well. So if you want to be a roll-up and an acquirer of businesses, do that. Don't try to be a platform service company as well, right? Especially if you only have sub-100 billion. I mean, there are players out there with, with, with half a trillion that can't do it, that are trying to build different types of models. 
and they're still subscale. So for us, we've been laser focused uh, on just supporting advisors, being a platform company, and staying in, in that in that swim lane. Uh, and there's really no one else that's doing that. Inertia, advisors not leaving, big competitor. Uh, you mentioned LPL. There's a lot of independent broker dealers that are trying to figure out how they reinvent themselves as an advisory firm. How do they become an REA custodian? Uh, how do they attract more advisor assets? How do they build TAMP capabilities? So a lot of, if you think about where, you know, we're in 20 different businesses and we just integrate it into a platform. A lot of our individual businesses may have competition, uh, but we're still the only fully integrated offering at the high end uh, of the model. And the last thing I think that I would mention, that I haven't mentioned yet, that's a competitive advantage, is our community. Uh, and I would say, look, you know, winners want to surround themselves with other winners. Uh, there really isn't a community where the average uh, CEO and principal uh, is a billion-dollar-plus RAA. Uh, they're geographically dispersed all over the country, so they don't really compete with each other, where they can get together several times a year at our events and share peer-to-peer on what's working, best practices, what isn't working, uh, on various growth strategies, on brand development, uh, on staffing. Uh, so, you know, our community, uh, I think, is a, is a very powerful differentiator because I think you're defined not just by who you service, but also who you don't. And for Dynasty, you know, thinking about our clients, we're not trying to be something to everyone. We're trying to be everything to someone. Uh, and that's the someone that really plays the high end of the market, that wants a partner, is focused on building a great business, not just a great practice, really wants to drive enterprise value, and wants to have a sustained business over time. That's our core focus client. Huh. Sound, sounds quite intriguing. I know we only have you for a couple of more minutes, so let me jump to my favorite questions that we ask all of our guests, starting with what's keeping you entertained during this work-from-home period? Tell us what your favorite Netflix or Amazon Prime shows are or what podcast you're listening yeah. to. Yeah, so in terms of um, the little bit of, of time I have away from, away from work, uh, as far as shows and, and podcasts, um, you know, Barry, I, I've never been one to watch a lot of television, to be honest with you. Uh, I do watch sports, uh, you know, from, from time to time and, and follow my favorite teams. Uh, but I do listen to podcasts. Uh, I'll give you uh, a nice compliment and plug. Uh, Masters in Business uh, is definitely uh, one, of my, one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, I do listen uh, to Jocko uh, Willett's uh, podcast. Uh, my wife and I are big uh, supporters of military. Jocko obviously is a former Navy SEAL, but sure. some of his uh, you know shows around leadership and overcoming adversity. Uh, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed those. I am a fellow at the Aspen Institute uh, in their finance fellowship uh, program. I really like uh, the Aspen Ideas to Go uh, podcast. Uh, you know, there are some quick hits uh, on various. Uh, uh, interesting ideas, leadership, entrepreneurship, uh, et cetera. Uh, and, uh, you know, TED Talks uh, from time to time are, are things that, that I'll take in when I'm taking a long walk, you know, here in, in St. Pete. But I'm more of a, a podcast uh, person, honestly, than somebody who is uh, watching uh, Netflix or, or Amazon Prime. Gotcha. So let's talk about some of your early mentors who helped to shape your career. In terms of my most early mentor, without question, it's my step-grandfather who raised me. His name was Clarence Townsend. Uh, both of my daughters are named after uh, him. Uh, my older daughter, her name is Townsend, and our younger one is Ann Claire. The Claire is from Clarence. Uh, as they say, we're named after one of our angels. Uh, he taught me uh, the importance of doing what you say, integrity, uh, being honest. He never borrowed a dollar in his life. Uh, so discipline around not spending more than you can afford. Uh, a lot of that obviously uh, was very uh, helpful uh, to me, as I said, when I was starting a business and remembering a lot of those uh, life uh, lessons that I'd learned from him. On the entrepreneur side, uh, one of my best friends uh, is a guy named Mike Rapoli. Uh, your listeners will probably know the name. Mike was one of the founders of Vitamin Water. Uh, he helped build other brands. Uh, like Kind Bar and uh, Pirate's Booty, uh, which he didn't found. And then he went on to found Now Body Armor, 
Uh, very few entrepreneurs have ever founded a billion-dollar brand from the ground up. Even fewer number uh, have done it more than once. And Body Armor, certainly a you know multi-billion-dollar brand at this point, as was Vitamin Water. So early on, when I was looking to launch this business, uh, Mike was a remarkable uh, sounding board. He and I actually named Dynasty together, which you know, we thought about it. Huh. We're both sports guys, so we thought about it meaning winning uh, consistently over time. Uh, multi-generational financial obviously describes the industry and partners in terms of how we work with our clients and our resource partners and relate to each other internally. So if you were to look at, Barry, uh, the Dynasty logo, uh, you will see some similarities to the Vitamin Water logo. Uh, and that's because when you have a brand-building genius <laughs> who's helping you early <laughs> on, you want to listen. So I would I would say Mike was uh, was a great mentor to me you know, early on in, in starting Dynasty. So let's talk about books. Tell us what some of your favorite reads are, and, and what are you reading right now? Well, I just read, uh, and, and this is this is going to be a shameless plug uh, for someone who's a friend of both of us. Uh, I actually just had the opportunity uh, to finish reading, uh, you know, Josh Brown's book on how I invest my money. Uh, Josh was Josh and I have been personal friends for, for quite some time. And what you know, you, you have remarkable talent and partner there who thinks the world of, of, of you. Uh, and and, and let, me, was... let, me just jump, let me just jump in here and say, <laughs> I remember when the two of you, I want to say it was 2015, were both yeah. named to the 40 under 40 list. Is, am I getting the dates right? Yeah, he's much older than me, but that's right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think you guys are about the same age. We are. We all kidding aside. We are, and we're kindred spirits, and he, he's the best. So he invited. Isn't me. Isn't that a great idea for a book? By the way, the to to speak to a bunch of people in finance, and say, "Don't yes. tell us what you say on TV. Tell us how you invest your own money." I, I love that idea. I, I do too. When he sent it to me, uh, what I the first thing I said to him is this is brilliant, and I'm shocked that no one else has thought about it. Right. I said, did you do your research? Has anyone else done this? And he said, I'm telling you, they haven't. And I get people reaching out to me all over the world. I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty special saying, hey, I just read your chapter of, of, of how I invest my money, uh, and I love how you said, you know, you know, how you think about the family capital, or I have a fun bucket, which for me is houses and my horses. We have a horse racing stable. Uh, and people from all walks of life have reached out. So it's been great, and I'm glad that, that Josh invited me to be a part of it. The other book I'll mention, uh, which I just started to read, uh, I'm a big proponent. I talked about mentorship, both being a mentor uh, and being mentored by a committee of people. I've just started reading uh, in professional development in yourself and your team a book uh, called Tribe of Mentors, which is written by a guy named Tim Ferriss, and sure. uh, it's a book that got introduced uh, to me you know, through the Aspen Institute. Uh, and uh, you know, again, it's early. Uh, you ask what I'm reading right now, but uh, I love the the concept of uh, of group mentoring. What sort of advice would you give to a, a recent college grad who was interested in a career, um, either as an advisor or in the professional finance services industry? Yeah, Barry, I love that question. Uh, first and foremost, I would say do it. <laughs> uh, we need you. Uh, you know, the, the financial health and wellness of our country is not where it should be, uh, whether it's uh, on a national or state level, whether it's the fact that over 70% of Americans can't put their hand on $1,000 in an emergency. Um, you know, given you know, my background and how I grew up, uh, financial literacy is something that's near and dear to me. It's fundamentally changed uh, the life that, that I've been able uh, to live. So we need more people to come into the industry. Uh, please do it. It's critical uh, you know, to, to, to our country. In terms of specific advice uh, to someone starting out, uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's not about what you earn. It's about what you learn in the first, let's call it, three years. So finding a great mentor, finding an organization, finding a team that cares about your development will push you, will let you fail, will let you learn from those mistakes. Uh, if you can find that environment and you're going to get paid five to $10,000 less uh, than an environment that you're not going to have that, take the lower pay. Uh, it's all about you know what you learn, the tuition, 
uh, you know, think about it that way early on uh, if it's a lower pr- uh, price job and put yourself in that environment because it'll pay massive dividends for you over the course of your career. And our final question, what do you know about the world of financial services, investing, advising today that you wish you knew 20, 25 years ago when you were first getting started? Yeah, well, that's a good one because, again, I'm 44 now, so you subtract off 25. I was a 19-year-old kid. Uh, but, look, what I like to, to tell a lot of uh, young people and certainly would, would tell my 19-year-old self uh, is to have the discipline to pay yourself first from an investment perspective. And as we all know, it's not always about getting right, whatever that means, uh, you know, the, the asset allocation, because uh, that'll change over time, or security selection, et cetera. It's about actually being disciplined to save. And whether you're saving, you know, 5% early on, uh, and even if that number appears to, you know, I hear a lot of people saying, I can only save $50 a month. Well, that's great. That's a wonderful place to start. Save the $50, start to invest it and let the miracle of compound interest start to work for you as early as possible in your life. Uh, And I love getting that message out to young investors uh, just to get them started and being disciplined. Uh, We all have a lot of priorities, but if we can say, look, 5% early on of our check, uh, without exception, regardless of what seems to be, you know, a big priority in our life, we're going to pay ourselves first and start investing it, get a simple financial plan in place. Uh, you look back you know, to your question 25 years later, you'll be very glad that you did it. Huh, great stuff. We've been speaking with Cheryl Penny. He is the founder and CEO of Dynasty Financial Partners. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the previous 400 such interviews we've conducted over the past seven years. You can find that at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you feed your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Uh, Reggie Brazil is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Atika Valbrand is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. 